I ask you to open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Our text is 8, 9, and 10, but we're going to read 1 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. But God who is rich in mercy because of His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In order that in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Father, today... Bless your word to our hearts. Open the eyes of our understanding, Lord, so that we might comprehend what is the width and the breadth and the height and to know the love of God which passes knowledge. Father, give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation about Christ and your eternal purposes and your eternal plan for your people that you have prepared for us. God, help us to understand who we are in Christ. Help us to appreciate what you have done because of what we once were. Help us, Father, to understand how it is that you have transformed us and what it is you have transformed us to be so that we will bring you honor and glory to the praise of your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Everything we are is about grace. It is all about grace, isn't it? I want you to turn over to Ephesians. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians. We were just in Ephesians, but I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul makes an amazing statement about his position as an apostle of Christ. And how he felt so unworthy to be an apostle, but how grace had transformed and changed him. And this is the hope for every one of us today, is the power of transforming grace. The power of transforming grace. God, by grace, takes what is dead and he makes it alive. 
I, I just want to stop and, and just sort of share my personal testimony. I'm not going to give a long one. But I was about 17 years old when somebody gave me a Bible. And I began reading the New Testament for the first time in my life. I had gone to Sunday school my whole life. I had walked down an aisle at a, rev, at a revival meeting when I was eight years old. And I said a prayer. I remember it was a fiery evangelist and he was preaching on hell. And that was a place I didn't want to go. And the evangelist asked me, young man, why are you coming forward tonight? And I said, because I don't want to go to hell. I don't know any eight-year-old child that wants to go to hell. And for me, conversion was just escaping hell at an eight-year-old child. And he opened the book of Revelation, and I remember as clear as, as if it was yesterday, reading Revelation 3.20 with me. And he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in, and he will sup with me, and I will sup with him. And the fiery evangelist said, Young man, he says, Do you want to ask Jesus to come into your heart? And again, there's not any eight-year-old child that wants to go to heaven. There's not any eight-year-old child who says, no, I don't want to keep Jesus outside and literally keep on knocking. So I prayed a simple prayer with him, and I was baptized the next week. And I'm convinced to this day that I had no clue what was happening. Because when I was a teenager, I was as lost as could be. I was walking according to the course of this age... I was driven by my lusts, I was driven by my passion, and I was a child of wrath. I was not a child of God. And it was evident by my life. I wasn't living in grotesque sin. I was living with an idol that I worshipped. And that idol was me and my athletic endeavors. And that's what I worshipped. And I began reading the New Testament for the first time in my life, and I began to understand who the person of Jesus Christ was. And I noticed as I read his life and his testimony, everybody that met Jesus and personally knew him walked away a changed individual. They were never the same. And there was no neutral ground with Jesus. Jesus said, that either you are with me or you're against me. Either you're a gatherer or you're a scatterer. No man can serve two masters. Either he loves the one and despises the other. And I knew that I did not love and embrace Jesus Christ, but I loved myself and my own idolatry. I continued to read through the Bible and I came to Romans chapter 10. And I knew who Jesus was by this time, and I knew that I was a sinner. And I came to Romans chapter 10, and this is how simple the gospel is. You confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, and you will be saved. That's it. You don't add anything to the gospel. You don't subtract anything from the gospel. And if you will do that by faith, God will make you a new creation. You go from death unto life. That simple and that easy. Paul said, I do not frustrate the gospel of God. For if righteousness comes by our merit and by our works, Jesus Christ died in vain. Galatians 2.21 I knew I was a new person. I knew that I had gone from death to life. The Bible became a living book to me. 
I, I went to school the next day and I began to tell all of my friends what happened and they looked at me as if I was a lunatic. I started putting Bible verses up on my locker. I started wearing Bible verses on my back when I ran through town. I had been changed. I don't know what happened. I can't explain it to you. And you know what? For the last 40 years, I have never gotten tired of reading this book. God has given me a hunger and a thirst for righteousness that I couldn't explain. Why I love to read it, I don't know. It is a mystery that I can't explain it to you. Something supernatural happened in my life. And that's what it means to be born again. And that's the power of grace. You can be as religious as you want to be until you personally ask Jesus Christ to save you from your sin. You are dead and without God. And Paul, the most religious man, I can't think of anybody more religious than Paul, a Pharisee, circumcised the eighth day, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he says in Philippians. And he says, all of that I counted as manure for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things that I might win or gain Christ, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. Not as though I had already attained, either were perfect, but I press after that for which also I've been apprehended by God, that I might gain the prize for the upward call in Christ Jesus. That's the transformation that Paul met and found on the road to Damascus. And he writes the Corinthians and he says, I am the least of all the apostles. I am less than the least of all saints, he says in Ephesians chapter 3. He says, I am less than the than, than even the least apostles. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. I'm reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9. And here's why. Because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I am absolutely nothing. And if there's anything good in me, it's not me. It is God's grace that changed me. If you see anything good in me, anything at all, it's not Patrick. It is the grace of God. And if you see something corrupt, it's not God. It's me. Amen? <laughs> he says, the grace of God was not in vain toward me. But I labored more abundantly than they all, than all the other apostles. I worked, I outworked all of them, even though I'm less than any of them. But look what he says at the end of this phrase. He said, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was within me. Everything you are today is because of grace. We come to this passage in Ephesians. And it starts out by reminding us of what we once were without Christ. Now, I want to put this in a context of the entire epistle. In the letter of Ephesians, what is this letter about? I've been reading Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, week in and week out, ever since I started this. I've asked you to do the same, and the more you read it, the more it comes alive to you. That God has had a plan for a corporate people called the church before the foundation of the world. 
and Jesus Christ was slain before the foundation of the world. And we are blessed in Jesus Christ. All spiritual blessing. He starts out this book in Ephesians with this incredible eulogy. Blessing God. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This was God's plan before the foundation of the world to call out a people to himself. And those people that God is calling out to himself who have put their faith in Christ, he has predestined certain things for their lives. He has predetermined that those who believe in Jesus are to be holy and blameless before him in love. He has predestined an inheritance to us. And he's given us a guarantee that we're going to make it to heaven by implanting the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And that is the down payment of our purchased possession. That One day we will be with the Lord. I know I'm a child of God, not because I have some emotional feeling, but because his spirit bears witness with my spirit and testifies that I am a child of God. He predestined us to be adopted. He predestined us to have an inheritance. And in this passage today, he says, I have not only predestined those things, but I have predetermined beforehand, planned out good works for your life that you're supposed to walk in these things. And it's all, all by God's grace. He reminds the Ephesians of what they used to be. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11. We're not going to spend a lot of time. We'll get this, this, this verse in a couple weeks. He says, therefore, Ephesians 2, 11, therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, I want you to remember who you used to be. The greatest way to appreciate grace is to remember who and what you used to be. And then he tells them what they used to be. You were called uncircumcision by what is now called the circumcision made by flesh with hands. That at that time, this is who you were. At that time, you were without Christ. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers from the covenant and promises. You had no hope. You were without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, everything has changed. This is who you used to be. And I want to remind you over and over again that this is what you once were. But now this is who you are in Christ, just so we appreciate grace. So let's just enumerate uh, uh, Roman numeral one, if you've got a bulletin and an outline. If you don't, you can follow along with me. But what we once were. First of all, we were dead, right? Ephesians 2.1, he made you alive even though you were once dead. Who were once dead in the realm of trespasses and sins. We went over that last week in great detail, so I'm just going to sort of summarize that. That doesn't mean that I'm a corpse. It doesn't mean that I can't understand spiritual things. It doesn't mean that I don't know about God and, and all the, the mysteries of creation. But what it does mean is that my sin, as a result of sin, it has separated me from communion and fellowship with God. That's what it means to be dead, our total depravity. I am separated from God because of my sin. Because of my transgression, I am under guilt and I'm under condemnation. I feel alienated from God. And just like Adam, I'm running from God and I'm lying and I'm hiding from God. I don't want God to see who I really am and I'm trying to cover it all up. And that's what I once was. Secondly, 
Before I was a believer, we once walked, lived, and courted the dictates of this dark spiritual order that was in complete rebellion against God. That's what I once was. I was walking in darkness. I was under the course. I was under the sphere and under the influence of demonic spirits. That's what the Bible tells us. Third thing that tells us what I once was, we conducted ourselves in our self-will. Our flesh dominated everything. In Romans chapter 7, we went over this last week, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. In my flesh, I cannot please God. In my flesh, I do not submit to the will of God. I want to do things my way. I want to do it for my selfish motives. And my mind and my physical actions are all motivated by my own sinful nature. And I'm a child of wrath, even as others. That's what I used to be. Verse 4, the most powerful verse, I think, in this entire chapter is verse 4. In fact, you read through this whole epistle and you come to chapter 2 and verse 4 and it's like dynamite explodes when it says, but God. He's praising God. He's eulogizing God for how wonderful God is and what he's done in electing us in Christ, his people before the foundation of the world. And then he prays that these new believers, these Gentile believers will understand all that they are in Christ, that they'll understand and they'll have a spirit of wisdom concerning Jesus, that they'll understand the hope that they have one day in heaven that they'll understand the power of the resurrection that lives in their lives. And then he says, but you were once dead and you had all these things against you, but God, but what did God do? His rich mercy, his wealth of mercy, his abundant grace because of his love that he loved us and three things that he did for us. One, he made us alive in Christ. Our spiritual senses were reborn. It's like, you had spiritual eyes given to you. The Bible becomes alive to you when you become a believer in Jesus. You see the realities of sin. You don't have to watch Fox News. You don't have to watch uh, CNN, any of those things. You see the world as it really is. You, you see hatred for what it is. You, you see prejudice for what it is. You see hypocrisy for what it is. You see genuineness and sincerity and all those, all those spiritual attributes and those fruits of the Spirit. You start to see them because your eyes have been enlightened. That's what it means to be alive in Christ. God gives you His perspective on life. And that's what He does for us in Christ. You were made alive. Our spiritual senses are reborn. We understand the things of God. Just like the prodigal son, we were once dead we were living in the pig pen. We were spending our lusts and our minds on fleshly desires. And we come home to God and God puts his arms around us. He puts a robe on us. He puts a ring on our finger. He slays the fatted calf. And he says, this is my son who was once dead and now he's alive. I have fellowship again with God. I'm brought home and I understand the things that I had with God that I, missed, that I was missing out on like the prodigal did. That's what it means to be alive in Christ. The next thing he says that we have been raised together with Christ. This involves the power of victorious living. Paul prayed that we might know the exceeding riches of his power toward us who believe according to his working of his might, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. You and I have been raised to walk in the newness of life. I was once dead. Now I have the ability to say no to sin. It is no longer my master. I am set free because the resurrected power of Christ lives in you and I. 
Romans chapter 6 and verse 4, Therefore you were buried with him by baptism and death, like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we now walk in the newness of life. I was once dead. I was once alienated. I was following the passions of my lust. I was under the sphere of this world order, and now I am raised with Christ, and I'm living a new life. Praise the Lord for what he's done. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey the lust thereof because you reckon yourselves to be alive with God through Christ Jesus. Slave is no longer your master. And thirdly, he says, you've been seated in heavenly places. You share in Christ's rightful vindication. Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. He was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. How did God vindicate Jesus in all of his action? He was delivered for our offenses. He was raised again for our justification or for our vindication. And you and I are completely vindicated. You and I are completely justified. God sees us as completely righteous and we are enthroned with Christ because of our union with him. We share in his new life. We share in his resurrection and we share in his enthronement. That's what we have in Jesus Now, how did all of this happen? Why did it all happen? Verse 7 tells us why. God is going to show in the ages to come His exceeding riches of His grace toward us in Christ. Verse 7. That in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God has a plan, and that plan is centered in Christ. Heavenly blessings are found in Christ. Our election... Our choose, the God that, who chose us, he chose us in Christ. Our adoption is in Christ. Our forgiveness is in Christ. And now God is saying, I am going to show all eternity by my people, my called out church, the exceeding greatness of my kindness. Look at these people that I have taken who were dead people who were walking according to the prince and power of the air, who were children of wrath, and look how I lavished my love upon them. And it's his church. We're going to be displaying it for all eternity. God's plan from before the foundation of the world, which now he's made known to his spiritual prophets and apostles, that the Gentiles are going to be fellow heirs with God's Jewish people. We're no longer strangers. We're no longer aliens. We're no longer outside of the commonwealth of Israel, but we are partakers of this blessing that God has planned for all eternity. That's who we are, and that's what God's going to do throughout the ages. Now, why did God do it? God is proving by both. that The word to, to show means to prove by argument, And it also means to prove by actions. And I just kind of went through all that, so I'm not going to say it again. Moreover, the law entered in so that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace much more abounded. He's going to show his kindness toward us in Christ in the heavenly realms. Now, God does this by grace alone. God provides it all. When we trust on Him alone implicitly, 
That means without qualification and absolutely. Verses 8, 9, and 10. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. The means is grace. The agency is faith. It has to be grace. Can you think of any other way to be acceptable before God other than grace? Just think about it. If God gave you one commandment, and he said, I want you to keep this one commandment to have eternal life, even if you were able to keep it, you would have kept it with the wrong motive. We can't even keep one commandment. James chapter 2 and verse 10 tells us, tells us that if you break one law, you're guilty of all of them. Paul said, I kept the law blamelessly until I came against that law that said, Thou shalt not covet. And the law that I thought was to bring life, instead it brought me death. And it wrought all manner of evil in me. And where sin is abounding in our lives, grace superabounds. It has to be by grace. Now, the only way it can be by grace if it's received by faith. Paul's very logical here. He says it has to be by grace, and that's the means, and the agency has to be faith. God is rich in mercy. His grace is because His great love with which He loved us. It's in spite of our previous condition, and it's because it's grace that's exceeding so much that it has no human origin and it has no human boasting. Romans, excuse me, John chapter 1 and verse 12 says, As many as receive Jesus, embracing Him, to them He gives the right to become the sons of God even to those who believe in his name, who are not born of the flesh, who are not born of blood, nor of the will of man, but are born of God. Believing in Jesus regenerates the soul. It's so simple. Grace is the free act of God to extend his kindness towards sinners and forgetting all their trespasses based on the merits of Christ alone. When God sees you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And the minute you add any works to that, you dilute the gospel message. Romans 11 verse 6 says this, If it is by grace, it is no longer works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. You add anything to it, and you defile it, and you pollute it. And how do we receive it? It's through faith. Theologians have debated this verse for centuries. And I'm not going to solve it for you this morning in 15 minutes. But I'm going to try to share with you the, the debate that theologians have been wrestling with for probably the last 500 years. And the debate is, is faith a gift that God has to give you? Or is faith something in man that God accounts to him for righteousness? Now, those who say that faith has to be a gift that God gives you, that man does not have the ability to even believe, base it on a wrong understanding, in my opinion, of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. They understand Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, that we're like a corpse, that we don't even have the ability to believe. 
And yet I showed you last week over and over again that Jesus put blinders on people. You don't put blinders on corpses. Jesus taught in parables so certain people wouldn't believe because he was judging them for their unbelief. There are so many verses in the New Testament that teach us unequivocally that faith is something in man that man must exercise to, for God to move in an appropriate way. I, let me just give you a few examples. I, I just went through the Gospel of Mark, and, and, and it just it blew me away as I, as I just began to look at these verses. First of all, in Roman, Mark chapter 2 and verse 5, you, you know the story when they tore the roof off, right? The, the, the paralytic is, is being lowered down. What, is the, what does the Bible say? The Bible says that Jesus saw their faith and he said, Son, your sins are forgiven. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 5, Jesus was grieved by the hardness of their heart and their lack of faith. That doesn't make a lot of sense to say that Jesus was grieved because of their lack of faith, because he had to give them the faith? No, that doesn't, doesn't, doesn't make any sense. Chapter 4 and verse 40, Jesus rebuked his disciples on the Sea of Galilee because of their lack of faith. And he asked them the question, how is it that you had no faith? Jesus would have just simply said, you guys have no faith because I haven't given you the gift of faith yet. No, it's implied by that statement. How is it that you have no faith? It's implied that you have been walking with me for such a long time and I have given you evidence. Now, I'm not saying that faith is not a gift from God, but it's not one that God withholds from certain people and only gives to others. That gift of faith his, his apostles should have had because they had been watching his life. They had been looking at God in human form. And he says, how is it that you guys have no faith? The same thing when he looked at Thomas. He says, you said, show me the Father. Thomas, have I been with you this long and you haven't figured out who I am? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He expected them to get, as the Irish would say, to cop on. Mark chapter 5 and verse 34 Jesus said to the woman with the issue of blood, she said, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I will be whole. And Jesus perceived that power went out of him, and he turned around, and he says, who touched me? And the disciples said, are you talking about this whole crowd? He says, yeah, that's right, Samantha. I would laugh too. And, and the woman knew she'd been found out. And he says, daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Faith is something in us that God recognizes and he takes account of and he gives us in accordance to what we have believed. The same story, Jairus is waiting for him to come to his house and he's dealing with this woman. Jairus is going, oh, come on, my daughter's going to die. Jesus turns around to him and he says, don't fear, only believe. Jesus marveled in the synagogue when he went in John, Mark chapter 6 and verse 6 at his own kinfolk because of their unbelief. In Acts 16, 31, what must I do to be saved? The Philippian jailer cried out. And I've actually heard people say this. When they ask that question, how can I be saved? I've actually heard people say, well, you've just got to wait for God to give you the gift of faith. 
No, you've already got it. All you have to do is exercise it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Now, why am I spending so much time on this? Because I want you to understand this morning that grace is available to you right now. The means is unmerited, undeserved favor with God. That God will work in your life and you will be what you not what you what you what don't want to be. You don't have to be it because grace is available right now. And how is it accessed? It's accessed through your faith, and you must operate it. You must ask God to do it. Consider this verse, Romans 4, 16. I'm going to read it slowly so that you it'll, it'll sink in. I mean, it took me a I had to read this like five times before it finally sunk into me. Romans 4, 16. Therefore, it is of faith, so it might be according to grace. Therefore, it is of faith, so that it might be according to grace. The condition of faith, listen to this, the condition of faith does not nullify grace. That's the false teaching that this, that this, this reform group is saying, that you have to have the gift of faith, otherwise it nullifies grace. You follow me? They're saying if you have to bring anything to salvation, including believing, then it's no longer grace. But this verse teaches quite the opposite. Faith as a condition does not nullify grace. Rather, faith as a condition establishes grace. Therefore, it is of faith so that it might be of grace. I have nothing to boast about just simply because I believe. Believing is like breathing air. It would be like me asking Jordan to go out for a run. He's not going to boast because he does. It's just something he does naturally. Every one of us has faith. You think about the things that you trust in. You think about the things that you have faith in. Now, where does faith come from? Faith doesn't just happen in a vacuum. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. We're told in Romans chapter 10 and verse 17. The more you study the Word of God, God begins to work and generate grace in your life. The more you experience Jesus Christ in your life, the greater your faith grows. The more you ask God and trust Him in your trials, the greater your faith will grow. Only those who humble themselves receive God's grace. Boasting is excluded. Where is boasting then? It's gone. Jeremiah 9.24 Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Don't let the rich man glory in his riches. Don't let the wise man glory in his wisdom. But the one who glories, let him glory in this, that he knows and understands God. That God exercises loving kindness. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Paul quotes that twice in the New Testament. One in 1 Corinthians 1.29. He says, where's the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the disputer of this age? God has chosen the foolish things. God has chosen the weak things to confound the mighty, to confound the strong, to confound the wealthy. Why? So that no one should glory in his presence, but as it is written, the one who glories, let him glory in the Lord. 
Every one of us can humble ourselves before God, and there's no boasting in that. Paul quotes it again in the end of Galatians. He says, it's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision that avails anything but a new creation. And God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ. That's my only boasting. It's what Jesus did for me on the cross by which the world is crucified to me. I don't need it anymore. And I'm crucified to the world. It's not going to tempt me anymore. What are we now? We are now God's workmanship. And you are a work of grace. You're a work of grace. The word for workmanship is the word poem. You are God's poem. I started to meditate on that this morning. Well, not, not this morning, but all week long. And I've got a stack of poems on my, on my desk. Those poems were written by my mom. And I started thinking about this. That is my mom's workmanship. You and I are God's poem. Now, in order for my mom to write poetry, it had to come from her heart. She had to know her subject matter. She wrote poems about her relationship with Jesus. She wrote poems about Ireland, and she researched it. And it was almost that you could almost feel her heart and her mind and her soul in those poems. And by the grace of God, you are that workmanship. That is you. By God's grace alone, you are God's workmanship. And he recreated you. He took what was dead and he made you alive. He took what was following the course of this world and he turned you into a follower of Jesus. He took what was dead and he made it alive. And the slave of sin, he made you now a slave of righteousness. That's who you are in Christ. We are his workmanship. The human soul has now been recreated. We have been created in Christ Jesus. This is a passive verb. It's nothing that I do. It's what God does supernaturally in and through us. We have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. Good works do not save us. But good works declare we have been saved. There is no genuine believer who does not produce a changed life. You just read the book of 1 John, and you'll walk away from that book saying, you know what, if I don't live a transformed life, if I don't love God's people, if I don't love God's commandment, I don't have any assurance that I'm a child of God. Over and over again, it says, hereby we know that we are the children of God. You are God's workmanship. You were created by Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, and you were created for good works, which God has preordained that you should walk in them. God has preplanned them. These works were prepared beforehand. God has made everything ready for those who are in Christ to walk in accordance to the newness of life. Works are not a source of salvation. They are the result of genuine salvation. Before we close, I just want us to turn over to Ephesians 4 looking in the same book, what these good works should look like and what this new created man should look like. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 20, 
but you have not so learned Christ. The other, the, the world that doesn't know Christ, the Gentiles, they walk in the futility of their mind. Their understanding is darkened. They're alienated from the life of God. The ignorance is in them. Blindness of their heart. They're beyond feeling. They've given themselves over to lewdness, to work all lewdness and uncleanliness with greediness. But verse 20 says, but you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, these new works, the first one is, I put off concerning your former conduct. The old man which grows a corrupt according to the deceitful lust. One of my new works is I'm daily putting off. This is a spiritual discipline. God has provided all the grace. Now he expects you and I to manifest and, and to, 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 to grab a hold of that grace through the act of faith. Through faith. I must believe it, I must act on it, I must reckon it true that I can put off the deeds of the old man. When I am tempted, through faith, I need to declare who I am in Jesus. I am dead to that temptation. I am alive with Christ. I'm raised with Christ. And so I actively put off the conduct of the old man. That's the works of this new man. And I am renewed in the spirit of my mind. That's the other good work that we do. I renew my mind daily. I fill my mind with God's word. And this is the work that God has prepared beforehand for you to walk in them. And if you're not doing it, you need to repent. You need to confess it. And you need to change directions and say, God, I want to daily renew my mind. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you renew your mind constantly by the Word of God. That you put on the new man, that I put on this new man that looks just like God, which is created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. I actively put off, I renew my mind, and I actively put on the new man, which is recreated and he looks like Jesus our works should reflect the character and the actions of God. None of our former life has been held against us. None of it. I don't care what sin you have been in or how bad you think you were. God doesn't hold you account for any of it. It is all forgiven, a clean slate. And I know that that drives a lot of people nuts to say that a man can simply be forgiven by grace alone? You mean a Charles Manson or a pedophiler or a rapist? He can, there's no, God doesn't have standards of sin. And if God looked in the recesses of your heart today, God forbid that we would put it on a, on a display for anybody, but God already knows it. And God says, I'm not going to hold any of it against you. It's all by grace. Boasting is excluded. There's no self-righteousness. Even the moralist who does a good thing is a sinner by his very nature. God's saving grace and sanctifying grace is activated through 
faith. The greatest creed. You know, there's a lot of creeds that have been written throughout church history. Nicene Creed. The Apostles' Creed. But the greatest creed is the tablet of your heart. Because that's the one people will read. You are God's poem. God from all eternity had you in mind as a part of His church when you believed in Jesus. He took everything that was against you and He nailed it to the cross. He raised you with Christ. He gave you new life. He enthroned you. He's going to show off throughout all eternity through His people, His goodness and His kindness of what God can do. And you are God's workmanship. You are created by God to walk and to live in a new manner. You're to reflect the very character of God and God's actions. Let's close with prayer. Father, we want to just thank you for your amazing grace. And God forbid that we should continue to sin just so that grace might abound. The grace of God that brings salvation to all men has appeared, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. We are looking for the glorious return and hope of our Savior and great God, Jesus. Lord, may our lives live in a pattern of good works that you have already determined for those who are in Christ. You've said, this is what I've determined for their lives to look like. God, may we activate your grace simply by faith alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning.